This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. I'm going to uh, give you some advance notice. You're going to have to get thee to a quiet room and uh, sort of saddle up close, uh, get nice and intimate and up close and personal with your radio receiver because... We're going to have a couple of low talkers in studio, and uh, that's by design. I'll get to more of that in just a moment. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, Last night, uh, and Friday night, of course, sitting in, hosting Coast to Coast, and last night I happened to mention uh, being a Canuck of a certain age, Uh, and I remember in in public school, going back to, let's say, 1971 Echo Place Public School in Brantford, and of course before the school day would be, would begin, we would sing God Save the Queen in school. In fact, uh, I don't think O Canada became our official national anthem until, I want to say about 1980. Anyway, we only sang the first verse, as far as I can remember. God save our gracious queen, long live our noble queen, God save the queen, uh, send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the queen. That's all there was, and, and I didn't realize... Until recently, there are other verses. And the second one, which I've just discovered, and the fourth, I found this very interesting. And and it's rather fitting, given the subject matter that we discuss on this program. Listen to the lyrics in verse 2. O Lord, our God, arise, scatter her enemies, and make them fall. Confound their politics frustrate their knavish tricks. O thee, our hopes we fix, God save us all. Confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks. Sounds like the composer, and there are various theories as to who that was, but it sounds like the composer was worried about some conspiracy being launched against Britannia, does it not? But listen, it gets better. Listen to the fourth verse. Again, God save the queen. You may not remember this from school. From every latent foe, from the assassin's blow, God save the queen. 
O'er her thine arm extend, for Britain's sake defend, our mother, prince, and friend, God save the queen. If anyone can explain the context of those lyrics, I'd love to know. Whose knavish tricks was the composer speaking of? And what's all this God save the queen or the king at the time uh, it was? When it was first performed in, in 1745, it would have been God Save the King. But what's all this about from every latent foe and from the assassin's blow? Again, sounds like there was a conspiracy afoot. Little did I, did I know uh, that when I was singing God Save the Queen back in Echo Place Public School in the early 70s, one day I'd be peddling conspiracy theories on the airwaves. Uh, but here we are. Follow the truth, friends. If you haven't ordered your passes to my all-day conference on Sunday, November the 16th, you better do it soon. Time is a-wasting. And we're only offering a limited number of uh, tickets so we can keep this thing reasonably intimate. So go to followthetruth.tv, check out the list of incredible speakers I'm bringing to town. Roswell investigator Don Don Schmidt, uh, retired U.S. Army Sergeant Jim Penniston, who was a key witness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, Professor Ronald Mallett, from the University of Connecticut to discuss time travel. Jim Elvidge on The Matrix. Uh, Patty Greer, one of the world's great circle chasers. I'm talking about crop circles. And, very excited, we've recently added another truly remarkable individual to the lineup, and she's standing by in studio with a special guest. We're going to spend the next hour with her. Let me get back to follow the truth for just a second. Again, it's held, being held in Oshawa at the Regent Theatre, which is a beautifully restored theatre down on King Street in downtown Oshawa. I believe it was on the vaudeville circuit about 80 years ago. So I'll be up on stage presenting these remarkable people, and then after the conference there'll be a special intimate meet and greet upstairs at the theatre. So listen, I need you to do this. I need you to call the box office, 905-721-3399. Use the code word Roswell and receive a special 25% discount off the price of your passes, Roswell. And uh, we'll put the first 200 tickets sold into a draw. The first 200 tickets will be in, placed in a draw. Prize number one, you get to sit in on this radio show. You'll sit right next to me in the studio, co-host the conspiracy show. You can even help produce the show, pick the guests. Prize number two, dinner with yours truly. I'll pick up the tab. Hell, I'll even carry the tray. (laughs) Not to worry. I'm going to pick a nice place. I'll pick a nice spot. Uh, You and a friend and me and maybe, who knows, the mighty Aphrodite if she's in town. Prize number three, you get to hang out in the green room with me backstage and our great lineup of speakers. You get uh, individual access to these amazing people. You get lunch, copies of our speakers' books, DVDs, and a copy of my two-volume collection of uh, Strange Planet. So don't wait. I want to see you there. I want to put a face to all of you, my, uh, my wonderful listeners. The box office number again, 905-721-3399. Call first thing tomorrow before you forget and you miss out. This is going to be a truly unique experience. Kind of a, think of a TED Talks or Idea City for the UFO paranormal conspiracy-minded. And as I say, one of our featured guests for Follow the Truth is here. Debbie Papadakis. She was destined to be a teacher, a healer, and a lifelong student of the human mind. At a very young age, she carried a deep passion and curiosity about the human mind and human personalities. And what started out as a career in psychotherapy 
exposed Debbie to the study of human dynamics, where she recognized an increased need in employing hypnotherapy and past life exploration techniques to treat her clients. This led to her advanced practice by becoming a Reiki master, a past life regression trainer, practitioner, a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, trainer, a timeline therapy practitioner, trainer, master practitioner practicing counseling psychology. Uh, she's got a resume that's as long as a first down in the CFL, let me tell you. Anyway, she's, she's here once again uh, to, uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what she's going to be doing at Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, but we're doing, we're conducting another in our series of live past life regressions, live on the air, and just seated uh, to Debbie's left. First of all, Debbie, how are you? Welcome. Hi, so welcome, and hi to all the listeners. Seated to your left is our subject for tonight, and just before the show, back in the, the boardroom down the hall, you placed Paul, yes, Coitus, in a, um, a deep hypnotic state. Hypnotic. In, in fact, my intern, uh, Albert, uh, was leading him by the hand, and uh, I've never seen Paul this relaxed. I know Paul because he is my partner in Follow the Truth. He is producing the Conspiracy Show Summit, and he's also the Associate Dean at uh, Durham College in the... Uh, the School of Media, Art, and Design, where I happen to teach uh, part-time. So Paul is, as I say, I've never seen him more relaxed. I mean, he is in a deep state. Is he not, Debbie? Yes, he is in a very deep state. And a couple of minutes ago, he had some tears. We should, you know, cards on the table here, uh, total disclosure. You know, not everyone, as you know, Debbie, not everyone is a candidate to be placed in a deep meditative state. Not everyone can be hypnotized that's correct. So, you know, before we do this on the air, we don't just do it cold. You know, we have to determine whether people are good candidates. So that's right. Paul came down to see you at the Hypno Healing Institute. That's right. Just we did some testings to make sure we have he's receptive to this kind of work in order to bring him here today and to go to a deep trance and explore his past lives. And so he's going to undergo uh, yes. what we hope is a past life regression. We don't know necessarily. I mean, we are working without a net here. This is That's live right. radio, folks. That's right. That's right. Well, a minute ago, he, when I asked him where he was, he told me he was in India, but I, I, it's been now 20 minutes. I don't know where he is. Now, uh, Paul, as far as I know, has never undergone, prior to, I guess it was this past Thursday, has never undergone That's right. uh, undergone hypnosis. That's right. And he certainly never sort of delved into past life regression. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he's he's laying back. Uh, I'm going to get him. Are you able to get him to lean forward and speak more directly into the mic? Okay, Paul, I'm going to count from one to three. At three, you will come. You will lean but I need you forward. on the mic at the same Just time, Debbie. Lean forward, and the minute you lean forward, you're going much deeper than you're right now. One, two, three. Just forward, and you're going deeper and deeper while you're doing this. That's right. And I need you on the mic too, Debbie. Can you hear me? Safe. That's right. There he is. Wonderful. Yes. Okay, I, you have to stay on the mic too yes. if you can hear me. Okay. Do you want to strap on those the headset? If I have this, it's better. Yeah, Albert in the other room. Can you hear me, Albert? Can you come in and make sure that uh, Debbie's headset is turned up? Because she needs to hear me. We don't need a headset on, on Paul. Okay. Albert, my uh, trusty intern, joining us from Ryerson. Albert, uh, her headset, uh, yeah, not too loud. 
Okay. Can you hear me now, Debbie, through your headset? Oh, yes. Excellent. Okay. okay. So you stay on mic. All right. So where are we going to take Paul? Well, I'm going to count from one to three, and I'm going to ask Paul to go to the place where he was a few minutes ago, and I really don't know where he was. One, two, three, Paul, just go back where you were a few minutes ago and start talking, explaining to us where you were and what you are watching, what are you seeing, and what you're experiencing. Take deep breaths while you're doing that. He is relaxed. He is really deep. He's not asleep, is he? No, he's not asleep. He's going to start talking. Now it takes him time. He's a very deep level, so he's... Where are you, Paul? Uh, I'm in India. And what is happening around? Just, just Speak just... into the mic, Demi. What is happening there? It's very dark. And it, there's a lot. There's so many stars. I've never uh -huh. seen so many stars. It's beautiful. And what are you doing there? It's a party. Uh huh. What kind of party is that? It's a wedding. Wedding. Who is getting married? I don't know them. I don't know. I'm here. I don't know why I'm here, but I'm at, I'm at this wedding. Take a couple of deep breaths and just look around. And I'm going to come from one to three. You will know how you know those people and who they are. In fact, you'll know your name, one, two, three. What is your name? I'm Tom. Tom. And how do you know those people who... How do you end up in that wedding? I'm, I'm taking pictures. Oh, you're, you're a photographer. He's the wedding photographer, I guess. Well, I'm a journalist. Journalist? And... Tell us more about your life. How old are you, a man, female? Or a man. Man, how old are you? Twenty-five. Twenty-five. What part of India is he in, Debbie? You ask. Can him. I ask him directly? Uh, All right. Actually, Paul, um, Richard is going to be asking you questions, and I just accept those questions as you accept in my questions. So you can. Should I refer to him as Tom? Can yes. I? Sp I yes. should speak directly yes. to Tom. Yes. All right. Not Paul, but Tom. Yes, yes. Tom, do you do you have a sense of what part of India you're in? Is it the south? Is it the north? It's, I've never been here before, and it's this, it's the south, and I'm on I'm on assignment. I gotta take some pictures, but it's it's you know I, I don't know these people, but it's beautiful here. I've never seen something so beautiful. There's so many stars. I'm wearing a uh, I'm wearing like khaki pants. I have very long hair. What year is it? How do we find that out, Debbie? He's going to talk. Just as the information is coming to him. One, two, three. You have the information. What year is it? This is 1960. 1960. 1960. So who's getting married? Why are these people so important that there's a journalist covering the story? I'm just here to tell stories. I'm just... I don't... I think I just... Why am I here? I love it, though. It's a great place. So these aren't necessarily famous people. He's sort of documenting, what, a day in the life of India? Well, you ask him and he'll tell you. Tom, are you yeah, on I'm assignment? I'm traveling around. For whom? National Geographic? What? Who? I'm just taking pictures for my for myself, but I, I want I want people to see these pictures someday. All right, listen, we got to take a time out, Debbie. Stay put. Tom, Paul, stay put. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, a live past life regression on the air. Thank stay you. with us. 
All right, welcome back. In studio, Debbie Papadakis, who will be one of our featured speakers at Follow the Truth. Uh, sorry, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. Uh, a past life regression therapist and uh, in studio as well. Our subject tonight is Paul Coides, who is actually the producer of Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, and he is in a deep, deep meditative state. He is uh, under hypnosis, and he's, ta- he's, um, he's talking about his, his sojourn in India, in southern India, and he has indicated that his name is Tom. He seems to be a photojournalist, and it is the year 1960, and he is, uh, at the present time, uh, experiencing or re-experiencing a wedding uh, where he's taking pictures. Debbie... Uh, what else can we find out about well, uh, Tom? Where, where are those pictures in this current time? Those pictures, do they exist somewhere? No. He's shaking his head no. What else is happening there, Tom? Not there anymore. Where are you now? It's daytime. It's very bright. And I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of colors. Mm-hmm. There's... There's different color, purple, there's gold, there's elephants, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's very hot. And what is the event there? How did you end up there? Was the I live p- here. I live there. And do you have a family? Do you have a... Yes. Yes. Um, tell us about your family. I have a wife. Uh-huh. I can see her. Is there anybody in these areas where you are that you recognize them from this current life? Yes. Tell me who is there. Interesting. My father-in-law. My father-in-law. And what is the relationship you have and that life that you know you are, you are in India? He is my father. He is my father. So his current father in life, in this life. This, this life is father-in-law and that life was a father. Interesting. Now, there was, in order to come to this life again with the same people, we usually have some contract make, something to be learned, so we come back again. What was, I'm going to come from one to three, I would like you to tell us, what was the contract that you guys had between the two of you? What was for you guys to learn so you came back in this current life? One, two, three. It's about love. It's about love. And once you learn about love, both of you, what are you going to do with this information? Everything's okay. It's about love. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't worry so much. Mm. Shouldn't worry so much. Does he have children? Tom, do, do you have children? Tom, yeah. I'm not Tom. Who are you right now? I'm Raja. I'm Raja now. What happened? He, did you go to another past life? Yes. And what year is this, Raja? It's the 1700 something. 1700 something. Can, I'm going to come from one to three. You will know the exact year. One, two, three. 1750. 1750. And what is your occupation at this time? I live in the village, and people are coming to me with questions. The questions are uh, towards what kind subject? What is your... Their problems. They have problems. And who are you? Like, what kind of uh, work you do? You're helping them, but I'm in helping a what them. way? I'm 
telling them, I'm giving them advice, I'm telling them how to solve their problems. Is, are you from a wealthy family? Oh. Yeah. Well, better than the other ones. Mm -hmm. And what kind of uh, advice are you giving them? Everything. Mm -hmm. And do you have a family there? I have a wife. Mm -hmm. How about children? No. No. Have you done anything in that life that... Um, was so significant that ex the information exists today. Let's say wrote a book or... or I see my books. My books, okay. Can you look at one of them and see what's the title? I just see the color. It's brown. The cover's brown. And I'm what, writing it. I'm writing it. It's not ready yet. I'm still working on it. What are you working on it? What, what is the topic... It's about life and spirituality and, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Are you a Hindu? What is your religion? That would be more. Okay. It's just the way. We don't have titles. Uh, what else can I ask him? Hi. Well, let's let's take him to. Oh, how old is he? And let's how take him forward in this life. Forty. I'm forty. Okay, I'm going to count from one to three. At three, you will be at another time in the same timeline, the same life, at another time, much further in time, that it will be a significant event, which from that event you're going to learn something that you can bring it later on into this current life. One, two, three, tell me where you are. I'm speaking to people. Speaking to people. And I'm giving a speech. The speech is about what? It's about philosophy. Mm -hmm. How many people are listening to you? Oh, there's hundreds of people here. Is he in a city, a village? I... I'm outside. Mm -hmm. It's like a school. Mm -hmm. And how old are you at this time? I'm 55. Mm hmm what else do you want me to ask him? Can can you can you take us? Can you take him, or can he describe his his last days on on Thank you. Earth? Thank you. Uh, I'm going to again count from one to three. At three, you will be at the time that you're ready to pass from this life. You will go to and just remember. You will see the event without any emotions. You will be able to describe it. You will basically see yourself passing from this life, and you will tell us where you're going. One, two, three. What's happening? What's the event without any emotion? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for me now. I'm waiting. Waiting for what? I'm waiting for me to come back. Mm -hmm. To come back from where? I can see it all. Tell us in details what you see. It's light. It's blue. Oh, so you, you, you left your body already, isn't it? I'm waiting for it to happen. Okay. I'm watching. And what are you feeling? It's just peace. It's just, there's no feeling. Is it okay for you to look backwards and see your body? 
and describe if there is if there are people there to your funeral. Just above it, watching it. Okay. How old are you when you pass? I'm just seeing it from above, I'm, but I'm waiting. I'm. I'm. I'm what are you waiting for? For it to happen, so I can. And I'm going to come from one to three. The time has come, and it will happen. Whatever you meant mm. happen. One, two, three. Tell me what's all going on now. Okay, I'm coming back. Coming back where? We're light. We're just light. Thank you. Follow the light and you will see a bigger light. Follow that light and allow that light to take you even further. There will be an orientation place. I'm, ting I'm tingling. That's okay. That's wonderful. Your body's healing oh, right I'm now. tingling. Your bo his body's healing right now. Right now he's tingling because his body, he's at an, in another dimension right now. And oh, my whole face is tingling. That's okay. Let me just recap. Uh, just relax. Paul okay. Coides is in studio. He is the producer of Follow the Truth, my all-day conference. To help you? And uh, Debbie Papadakis is also in studio. Debbie is a past life regression therapist. She's going to be part of our panel at the Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. And uh, Paul is undergoing a past life regression live on the air. And Debbie has taken him back to mid-18th century in India, uh, where uh, he appears to, be a, uh, to have been some sort of, I don't know, guru, uh, spiritual advisor. And she has taken him to the moment of his death, which he is now describing. And now he's in time between life, life between life. So he's above, he's by about, and he's, t tell us what's happening right now. My whole face is tingling. Everything, everything is tingling in my body. Your body's transforming right now. Your body's healing all the way. And when people go to this situation, they're healing all the way. Uh, can but you give us details, can you give us details of how you passed? How did you die? You know what? I'm going to ask him. The, the how to die is to pass now. We have is it? To, okay. We have to go and see what's happening where he is. All right. Can we call some help? Can you call some? I don't know. I don't want to give you the words here, but um, who's coming to help you? Is any spiritual? Oh, we're all here. We're all here. And just because of time, I'm going to ask you to to go further and... Michael's here. Michael. I'm Michael. Oh, you're Michael. And can you describe how you look, even though... Oh, I have wings. You have wings. It's okay, and everything's okay. Everything is okay. Who are you, Michael? What are you? I can see myself. We're all, we're, it's light. We're just light. Uh-huh. Why do you have wings? I shouldn't be talking about this. Okay. Interesting. 
You can talk only what you think is the most appropriate thing to talk, please. It's okay. We have to respect that. We're all light, you know, yeah. and it's gonna. It's all. It's all okay. Our beings are just light. Is there any place to go to learn something further? Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, it's always. It's always. Always a place to go. Yes. We're always learning. Learning is divine. Yes. We're, it's 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 all about learning. How about your soul group groups? Is mm -hmm. it okay for you just go to your soul group and tell us how does that group look like and uh, what is the main uh, the main uh, thing for you who you are with uh, regarding to your soul groups. We shouldn't get upset. We should not get upset. Thank you. That's a good information. Can I ask Michael another question? Yeah. You have wings. Do you? I, I know. If you can't answer, you can't answer it. Are you an angel? Are you, are you an angel? I shouldn't talk about this. He it's, doesn't, and I'm not going to. Please, let's not not push something. When they're in this place to talk about it, it's not okay. All right. Thank you. We have to respect that. Just tell us something about your soul groups. We're friends. Mm-hmm. How many are you? There's two of us, and there's Michael. Mm-hmm. And what's your purpose of your being? Your purpose of your being. Look towards the future. Look towards the past. Mm, I'm tingling. You're tingling. I'm you know what, Debbie? We're heading into a break, so... Why don't we get that answer when we come back, and then we'll bring Paul out of this, and we'll Thank sort of do our live on-air debriefing. Paul Coides is undergoing a past life regression. Debbie Papadakis, it's okay. It's okay. our past life regression therapist in studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Paul is getting very emotional at this moment. Uh, let's take a time out. We'll come back with more here. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. That was uh, just a little preview of what you could experience at uh, Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit coming up in November in Oshawa at the Regent Theatre. And uh, Debbie Papadakis is in studio, past life regression therapist. Uh, as I say, she'll be one of our featured uh, guests at Follow the Truth, November the 16th. Uh, you can read a little bit more about Debbie at uh, followthetruth.tv. Now, our subject tonight... The gentleman whose voice you heard is Paul Coides, who is the producer of Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. He's with Fireside Tartan Events. And, uh, Paul, hey, welcome. Hi. Hey, thank you very much. You were, you were out. You were under. You that were was wild. Yeah. Yeah. This was, was this your first time under hypnosis? I mean, I know you saw Debbie earlier in the week and you did sort of a pre-session, yeah. but was that your first time? Uh, this would well if that uh, if whatever that was was hypnosis. This is probably my my second uh, time. Yeah. So the first time was was with was with Debbie on Thursday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. How do you feel right now? Uh, right now, I feel I feel amazing. I uh, I got to tell you, I feel I feel great. Um, do you have any recollection of what you were talking about while you were under? Yeah, it's, you know, again, not knowing um, how this really works, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, I've, I have, uh, I can I can recall all of it. You know, I, um, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious during all, like I, I'm aware of what's happening. I'm just saying things that I wouldn't normally, you know, say, um, in being in two places at the same time. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty, it's really mind blowing. Like literally, it's really quite incredible. You were, you were Tom, you, you seem to be a photojournalist in India, 1960. You were taking pictures of a wedding. You were describing the beautiful night sky and so forth. Yeah, it was, it was, it was gorgeous. Yeah. Have you ever been to India? Uh, yeah, I was there, uh, about maybe eight years ago, I think. Yeah. We had a wedding for chance. No, no. And, uh, any, any idea why the connection to photojournalism you know, uh, it's funny. The um, you know, I it, it was me. It looked like me. I could see this person. You know, and uh, but it, it was I looked like me, but different than me. And uh, I I could see what I was wearing. I could I could see the camera. I could see where I was. I was a bit confused why why I was there. Um, and it was but it was all very fleeting. You know, there was a lot of different sort of crashing images all happening at the same time. Um, and then, of course, uh, which is what happened the first time, I ended up in this other place, which I can't quite describe what it is because uh, I don't have any words for it. But um, uh, the images I can see very clearly. He, uh, Paul went to, the, to a different dimension, and it's very interesting um, when you ask him to describe about this beans with the wings and he says I'm not supposed to talk about it this is this happened to a number of times um, this is a very sacred place a very sacred uh, situation and um, very often they will only tell you what is the most appropriate thing to say and I can see that in the radio he will not talk about well, it. Well we should we should explain that the the second past life that you experienced. You seem to be some sort of a holy man. Uh, Rav, was your name Rav? Raj. Raj. Raja. Raja, yeah. And, and people were coming to you for advice. You seemed to be uh, some mm-hmm. sort of a scribe or an author. You were writing uh, writing a book. This was mm-hmm. in the mid-1800s. Does this sound familiar? Seven, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, it, uh, the uh, that one was a little more uh, vivid, I think, um, than the first one. And yeah, I mean, I could see the you know the rooms I was in. I could I could see the people. Uh, I knew why I was there. Um, you know, uh, I was talking to people. I was writing. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Debbie took you to the last day of your life. We don't have too much detail as to why you passed, how you mm-hmm. passed, when, but you were hovering above your body, and yeah. then you went into this. This other dimension you're talking about. He, w- he went to this other dimension. Richard, when we do the sessions, these sessions are three hour, two, th- two hours, three hours, four hours. So just cutting it down, even that the first break you took, you, we took here for five minutes, uh, he ended up in somewhere else because he's, he's there and then he's, uh, he doesn't, you know what I mean? He's not right. given instruction. He's right. the sound of the voice and everything else. And then his mind took you, just took him to something else. And and it's a very short period of time. But uh, so... Let me ask you, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to this experience, what, what, what was your... What are your views on reincarnation? You know, apart from maybe appreciating it or understanding it at an intellectual level, you know, I really didn't think much of it. You know, um, I come from a family that has uh, many different religions, you know, uh, attached to it. Some of them 
are are not open to the idea of past lives. Other parts of my family, you know, uh, it's it's a big part of who they are. So I never really thought about it much, apart from an intellectual level. Um, now, uh, having gone through this experience, so when when I was coming to it, really, it was just very experimental. I was just let's just see what happens. Um, I think now coming out of it. Um, you know, it's 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 all very very possible. And it's funny because I've been talking to people about this for the last couple of days since I had this first experience on Thursday, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are you know feeling the exact same way. So it's funny these people are are sort of coming into focus now, and I'm exchanging a lot of new information. So yeah, I think it's uh, you know I can't quite describe it or or or, or explain why, um, but it's I I was someplace else, you know. It was really quite something. When you were in this place between incarnations, uh, and you mentioned, then all of a sudden we were speaking to someone named Michael, who yeah. had wings, yeah. and uh, you you weren't able to speak too much. Can I ask him about it now? No, he can. Uh, no, can now he sure. can. Ask. Were you were you the archangel Michael? You know, I don't know uh, the. Um, hey, I, I can't. I got to go to a break. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, the music's kind of low here, so I gotta. I okay. gotta take a time out. We'll come back and sure. think about that. Yes, I will. Was Paul the archangel Michael? We'll get to that. Debbie Papadakis in studio, past life regression therapist. She will be part of our Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit coming up in November. We'll give you more details. And uh, Paul will speak to that as well because our uh, past life regression subject tonight is, in fact, the producer of Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit. Back with the Conspiracy Show in a moment. All right. uh, Just a few moments uh, remain with Debbie Papadakis, our past life regression therapist. And uh, uh, Debbie, uh, the website, hypnohealinginstitute.com. Hypno-healing.com. Hypno-healing.com. Okay. And they can find out more about the Hypno Healing Institute, the kind of work you do. And, and, and we get, have all kinds of workshops coming up too in our place. All right. So, yeah. w- what are you going to? What can people expect when when you're at the, uh, the the Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit? You're going to be up there on stage. You're going to give a presentation. Yes. I'm going to give a presentation with PowerPoint. I'm going to talk about past life for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, and then I'm going to take one person, maybe two, maybe three. I'm not sure. And I'm going to hypnotize them, take them back to a past life in front of everybody, so they can witness it. And then I'm going to take the whole group, whoever is open, we're going to spend about 40 minutes, 50 minutes to hypnotize everybody and take them to past life and perhaps to future lives. And if they're open, we can go to this place where where Paul went today to the life between life because it's a, it's, it's a different kind of work, but it, we can do that and we will do that. And if people who, if people are open, they will have a wonderful experience. Uh, now, Paul, you're, you're kind of still a little bit dazed and oh, this yeah. was really surreal for you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it was a, prof- it's a profound experience. When you approached me, you came to me and you said, Hey, we should, you should take the conspiracy show live and let's do a summit, kind of a Ted talks, kind of an idea city. Thank you, Moses. An idea city for, uh, for people that are interested in alternative viewpoints, UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy, the supernatural. Uh, you probably weren't prepared for this, were you? No, You didn't no. know what you were getting into. I did not. And uh, no, I did not know what I was getting into. But I, I'm, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, much like the story of the summit, you know, I think uh, there's a... Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, well, like anything that's worthwhile, there's a bit of mythology behind it, and there certainly is for this particular event. Um, and uh, things are unfolding the way that they're supposed to, I think. 
How do you think people are going to respond when they see Debbie live in action on stage at the Regent Theater in November? You know, it's very interesting. I, um, you know, among you know, apart from apart from this, you know, session, the the uh, conference has a lot of other subject matter that we're going to tackle. You know, uh, you know, all the things that you're talking about on your show: time travel, crop circles, absolutely, Roswell. And, and I think that there is a um, very quickly growing public appetite uh public there there's an itch that uh you know people uh need to sort of uh scratch and it, it's just it's becoming uh the type of thing that more and more people who wouldn't normally uh sort of even think about this stuff are are beginning to and there's a there's a definite um you know main street kind of interest uh, beyond interest you know people are i think at a stage where they want to have other people around them to talk about these things and to get the kind of information and to meet other people who talk about these things. How do I think people are going to react to it? Um, the way that people always do. There's going to be some who are, are fearful of it and uh, who don't think this kind of information should reach the light of day. There's going to be others who have, have uh, never thought that it's been okay to talk about this kind of stuff because they may be labeled as, you know, subversive or, you know, uh, something else. I think we're going to get a wide range of reaction, but we're we're going to get reaction. I think that there's a lot of people who are going to, who are going to come and show up and want to meet other people and hear from these speakers. And you know, I think the work that Debbie does is just, it's just, it's just mind blowing. Like literally, it is. You know, I, I've, I feel like a changed person since I first uh, went through the our our first initial meeting on Thursday. I really do. How so? How you, how have you changed? I I uh, I've I've never felt more free more confident um you know i had a had a really interesting experience uh, if you don't mind i'll just explain the last three days after i saw debbie the first time on thursday um it was a very long session longer than i anticipated i had about three hours sleep and i after that i jumped in a car and i drove to new york city and uh, you know new york city uh you know the uh, especially during the u.n general assembly the whole world is you know there like you can feel everything and uh the experiences i had over the last three days like everything just fell into place i met so many incredible people um you know things are progressing in such a way and it was just like everything was falling into place you know i've i've, I've literally never felt this good uh you know probably since i was a child and 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 your feelings now about uh, reincarnation? How do you feel about it? I I I think it's uh, you know I think it's fascinating, and I think it's you know there's a lot there. Absolutely, I mean there's we we uh, we only know such a little uh, you know piece of information you know that we can sort of process. And when you start going through all these things, it's fascinating stuff. It really is. I I, I if you're asking me if I believe in it, yes, the the answer is yes. As a result of your reg your regressions with Debbie, correct. I mean, again, I could probably appreciate she ate it as a potential a reality at an academic level to some degree before having experienced this and having Debbie take me to these places that uh, I've been before, obviously, or even, you know, the in-between world stuff, because it was very familiar once, uh, once Debbie brought me there. And uh, of course, again, this is all, you know, um, things that are, I think meant to be, I mean, the, the three of us sitting around here, this, you know, console right now sort of having this conversation about this you know it's uh wouldn't have been like imaginable six months ago uh, debbie is uh talk to me about about paul as a subject is he 
he's very easy to hypnotize. He was open, very open. And uh, in fact, he went to places um, beyond my expectation. Really? What does that mean? That means that I didn't have to work very hard. I ask questions and then he will go there instead of thinking, oh, am I in the right place? Am I answering right? Am I doing it right? Oh, because the minute you you start asking questions and you analyzing it, you're getting out of it. Because to go to those stages, you cannot analyze. You cannot analyze. There is no analysis in this place. That's my problem. The, That's I, I don't know if I would be a good subject because if I, you allow yourself, I have a monkey mind. No, you don't. You just say yes, that. And, and, and if you continuously say you have monkey mind, you will. I'm just asking you to just play along as, as a, a game, as a game. And whatever you see, people say, well, I can't see anything. You know, every moment of the day, every moment, every second of the day, we have thoughts in our heads, okay? Those thoughts are coming out as a word, as a picture, as a vibration, frequency, energy. So if I don't see anything, I mean, the monks down in Tibet, they meditated 50 years to 20 days, to, I don't know, 10 hours, 15 hours a day to get a one, two minutes of nothing. I don't think none of us got this to nothing. So there is always something going on. And if we just allow and accept whatever the picture is. Here we had a situation. We think Paul is in, in uh, India. And he says, no, 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 I'm not there anymore. Do you understand that? So he is where he is, and he's accepting that. He wasn't fighting. He wasn't saying, well, let me see. Uh, this guy's asking me to go there, and now they left me for five minutes because we had the break, and I'm supposed to. No, he just went, wherever he went. And one minute he's here, the other minute he's there, the next minute he's in the between life between life. It's very interesting. This life between life, it's, uh, I've seen people heal all kinds of uh, problems and illnesses and all that because once, you, like he said, he's tingling because the body, the body is, 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 uh, is allowing the information to travel. It's like when you go and have a acupuncture or something, you, you they put the needles to allow the energy to flow while well, the energy is flowing and the body's healing automatically. When That's what t- that was. I got to be honest with you, because you were in India and you were talking about death, I thought maybe you were on a funeral pyre. Right. That's my, no, honestly, I thought you were being, you know, cremated. Yeah. Oh, right. I'm not trying to make light of it. That's, yeah. you, you know, you, oh, you say, oh my God, I'm, I'm feeling tingling. I, the, the, that tingling sensation, probably the second time now that's happened, you know, the first time on Thursday, um, that is probably the most startling, profound thing. Like, like literally everything in my body was tingling. I don't know how I would make myself you know, feel that way or tingle. Like I don't, I couldn't will myself right now to have my fingers or my face or anything tingle, you know, but everything, it was, it was really, I've never felt that before in my life. That was incredible. How is this going to work, Debbie? Okay, even when I do normal work and it doesn't have to be past life, when we clear an emotion such as anger, sadness, hurt, pain, uh, whatever, it can be from the childhood, from now, from the womb, from uh, past life from genealogy, when we clear those emotions, all of a sudden the body is tingling. What's happening is the body has its own set up state and all of a sudden we go and remove them an emotion. We remove something and the rest of the, the, the emotions are trying to travel around to basically the pathways are opening for information to come in. Quite often people feel stiff and then you do some work and all of a sudden they feel lighter. Uh, I have, this is 99% of my clients feel tingling with 
with the work I do. It's, this is this is not just uh, uh, with you. I mean, this is this has happened with everybody. Even when I don't do past life, I do the normal hypnotic work. Uh, we have the tingling because people feel lighter. The minute like people have anger, create, remove that anger out of them. I'm telling you, the whole body becomes lighter, and every other emotion and belief and feeling the muscles are trying to to find their new spot, new place. I mean, there there is a. Um, uh, today I was talking to a client of mine, who, Dr. Sarno, who is a who is a surgeon, and he he talks about the back. He wrote a book, all kinds about the your back pain, how to heal your back pain, and he says if you change your mind, you, you heal the relationships with the people around you. All of a sudden, your back is not having any pain anymore. So. Uh, and this is old book, but still, I mean, the, the idea is there. So when we remove uh, negativity, which is negativity is very heavy, Richard. Negative, it's very heavy. When you're feeling love, you're feeling lighter, you lift it. When you're feeling anger, sadness, hurt, pain, uh, right. guilt, and all that, you're feeling down. And so the theory when, is that the, 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 the root of these problems, it could be yes. undiagnosed pain, the, the root is in a previous life. Could be yes. some unresolved issue, an, yes. an, a, a, a contract yes. uh, between you and another person in a previous life. And well, yes, these relationships you carry from one incarnation to the next. You yeah. mentioned we're, we're almost out of time here, Paul. But you mentioned that in in one previous life, when you were uh, Raja, uh, your father in that lifetime is now your present day father in law, yes. right? Which is yeah. interesting. And it's funny because when I first met my my now father in law. I had this feeling that uh, he was had been my father or something. And really, I, you know, there's a, there's and it's it's you know there's someone who I met recently and uh, the first time I met him, I uh, a friend of mine and I felt like he was my brother and I wouldn't be surprised if if I do and explore that if he actually was amazing. Okay, so we're gonna see you Sunday, November the sixteenth. That's right. The Region Theater, beautiful theater, historical building we'll down in uh, downtown Oshawa, King Street. I'd be happy to be there. I'd be I'd be I'm looking forward. Follow the truth TV. For more details, call the box office, 905-721-3399. Do it first thing before you forget, tomorrow morning. Thanks, Paul. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Thank David. you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Richard. All right. And uh, the website, again, followthetruth.tv. The website for the radio program, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. I have to tell you, uh, I'm still reeling from my uh, conversation with Dan Ritten last night on uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, Dan is the host of Daily Planet on uh, Discovery Canada, and he's uh, a biologist. He loves bats, vampire bats in particular. Uh, so I'm not sure if you caught Coast last night, but Dan has this new book out called Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, and in it he sort of pokes around into the uh, the dark side of the animal world uh, so much you know that we, when we when we uh, we hear about nature and and uh, the animal kingdom there's a lot of anthropomorphizing going on and aren't animals all wonderful and isn't nature grand and if we could only get back to the garden and so forth well Dan sort of lays that bear in this book I mean he loves nature and and he's totally turned on by you know even the darker realms of the animal kingdom but we had uh, uh, three hours kicking around uh, some pretty amazing conversations about. Well, we talked about. We talked at length about the mating habits of spiders, if you can believe it, and uh, how the female 
usually ends up eating the male during copulation. And we talked about forced copulation in the animal kingdom, in the duck world. I mean, how else can I describe it? There is, again, this is anthropomorphizing. It's, it's called forced, forced copulation, but it's kind of a rape culture in the duck world. And uh, now I'm thinking, you know, I'll never look at a, a male duck again the same way. They are not the cute little, adorable little, uh, you know, the Affleck duck or goose that we see on TV. And to think, you know, when we go to those, we come to those duck crossings, and I, I, I slam on the Drake uh, on the brakes when, uh, whenever a duck crosses the road, and now I'm asking myself, why am I doing that? Those male ducks are real SOBs. <laughs> and don't get me started on what happens to the form, the uh, the poor female bed bug during copulation. It's heartbreaking. Yes, pity the female bed bug. Uh, I'm going to get Dan Riskin on this program uh, real soon. Uh, season three of the Conspiracy Show television program of, is, of course, well underway. Monday nights on Vision TV, 10 p.m. Eastern. And our next episode, The Water Engine. Stanley Meyer uh, posted several YouTube videos a number of years ago, which appeared to show him operating an internal combustion engine on just water. And, in fact, he claimed his water engine uh, powered a dune buggy across the United States. And then, of course, Stanley Myers died quite suddenly and under rather mysterious circumstances, and some say he was assassinated by agents working for Big Oil. So that's this week's episode, The Water Engine. And after you, don't, uh, and after you watch it, don't forget to log on to theconspiracyshow.com, which is our interactive web- website where you can discuss, debate, vote. And uh, good news, we're uh, The Conspiracy Show television program now in the U.S. Season 1 is now being televised in about 110 markets in the U.S., and it's growing. And we're getting some terrific response down there. Uh, In fact, just got some results, some data. We're number one in Albuquerque and number two in Houston in our time slot. Very quickly, I also want to mention our good friend, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, a remote viewer intuitive, uh, medical intuitive, uh, Canada's Edgar Casey, no stranger to this program. He was just on, was it last week or the week before? He's got a miracle transforma- transformation event happening Saturday, October the 4th. That's coming up uh, this uh, next weekend. Uh, Saturday, October 4, 1.30 to 5 p.m. in the Wellesley Room, Holiday Inn, downtown Toronto. The Wellesley Room, Holiday Inn, Saturday, October the 4th, 1.30 to 5. And that's 30 Carlton Street in Toronto between Young and Church. And uh, here's the number. If you want to pre-register, you call 905-393-5104. Miracle Transformation event on our good friend, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell. All right, we are going to talk paranormal for the next hour and how. And it may be the most notorious and most terrifying poltergeist haunting of recent decades. It's called the Bridgeport Poltergeist. And it was seen and heard, seen and heard by thousands of people on one Unforgettable, uh, unforgettable day back in 1974. And one of the local youngsters who was sort of following the remarkable events unfold as it was covered by the local media 
was uh, a then 10-year-old uh, boy by the name of William J. Hall, and he remembers every detail, and who wouldn't? And uh, William would uh, grow up to become a magician and a well-known investigator of the paranormal and the unexplained. In fact, he, uh, he wrote a syndicated column on those very subjects for many years in Connecticut. And Bill Hall is with us tonight to share never-before-reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents and reports. And it's all detailed in a journalistic new book entitled The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. Bill Hall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you with us. So take us back. 1974, you were 10 years old. Now, first of all, how, how, how big a town is Bridgeport? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a good-sized city. I, I, you know, it's nowhere near uh, anything like Chicago or anything like that. Um, so I'd probably put it in the mid-sized uh, range. Um, and this was a, uh, a very tiny house uh, downtown. So, and, and did you know of the house pr prior to to the events that unfolded on that 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 day in 1974? Had you passed by the house? Was there were there rumors about this house prior to the news coverage? No, not at all. No, um, the the first uh, many of us heard of, heard of it was uh, of course on TV uh, as the story not only hit locally but then soon. Uh, virtually went around the world. I mean, Israel, Japan, Australia, uh, you know, Canada, <laughs> in, in your backyard, I mean, everywhere. Um, uh, so it was one of those stories that just got uh, so much more public and spread so much farther than these things uh, usually ever do. It was kind of like the Roswell of haunted houses, if you will. Right. So you're 10 years old at the time. Take us back and, and uh, the, the circumstances under which you, you, you saw the news coverage and, and became involved in this story. Well, uh, you know, when I was, there's two parts to it. When I was 10, um, you know, I saw it on TV and I, I asked my dad, you know, is it real? And he said no. And, and that was kind of the end of it for me you know I was of course uh, fascinated by it but that that was about it and uh, many years later even when I was writing uh, the news column uh, magic in the unknown I, I by then I had kind of forgotten about it and didn't really uh, never really looked into it in any sort of depth um, until uh, I was having my coffee, doing what every intellectual does, reading the Wall Street News. Uh, it might have been Facebook, though. Uh, yeah, it was Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street Journal sounds better. Let's go with that. I know. I know, right? Yeah. Um, and somebody said, do you re does anybody remember? It was on one of those community papers, uh, the community fan pages. Does anybody remember the haunted house on Lindley Street? And that's when it occurred to me, geez, I never really looked into this thing, you know, Um and so I went online and started looking into it. And after about 50 newspaper articles, I was convinced that uh, no matter what happened, real or not, that there had to be a heck of a, uh, a story in here. It was least worthy of investigating. So that's when I wrote down all the names of all the people mentioned in the paper, uh, police officers, firefighters, you know, reporters, uh, 
neighbors, onlookers, you know, all the people that were mentioned, priests. And uh, that's when I started calling. Of course, many of them no longer with us, but uh, I happened upon rather quickly, in fact, uh, police officer Joe Tomic, who was uh, a first responding police officer. And uh, uh, after interrogating me like he was back on the job, <laughs> we uh, you know, he, he opened up and actually told me some things that he never confided uh, in the police report or the news back then. And uh, he had mentioned that he was forced to be uh, interviewed after it was called a hoax. Uh, a few days later, after it really hit, you know, uh, big time in the press. And uh, he said, you know, I don't know why they for set up a conference room with the police department. They forced us to be interviewed and and there was a big, big, uh, big investigation. He said, if you can find those people who did that, he said, uh, then you'll find out what really happened. Okay, so and, let's take us back to that day, Bill. Uh, for, and yeah. This is 40 years ago. This is half a lifetime ago. And there are people listening who have no idea what happened in, in 1974 yeah. in, in uh, Bridgeport. So how were the news, the, as the news reports were coming out, what were they saying? What happened on Lindley Street? Uh, well, the uh, the high level uh, overview of it was uh, it was a, a tiny little house, 738 square feet, uh, real tiny, and it was uh, mother and father, Laura and Jerry Gooden, and uh, their little daughter uh, Marcy, who was 10. And um, when they had all this activity happen, uh, they ended up on the porch hysterical, and they ended up. Uh, getting the attention of their neighbor and good friend who also was a Bridgeport police officer who came over and saw chairs opening and closing and, and some crazy things happening. And he didn't know what to do, so he called for backup. He was off duty at the time. Sorry, and let me ju just jump in. You said chairs opening and closing. You mean like recliners? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, those heavy 1970 recliners were opening opening and closing uh, in the living room on their own, and uh, as well as some other things like the refrigerator moving. And, and uh, so, of course, he was, yeah, he thought they were broken into when he first went in there, uh, and he didn't know what to do. So he called for backup, and four police officers came in two cars. They didn't know what to do, so they called the fire department. The fire department came, uh, actually, it was 12 firemen that came to a 10 firemen, two chiefs. They came, they didn't know what to do. So they called the chaplain at the fire department and, uh, they went and got the priest and brought him there. And, uh, and he basically told them something evil's here. Something's not right. And, and so it just kept escalating. And of course, then as word gets out, uh, you know, between picking it up on the radio, on the radio and the, and all of the uh, the people start gathering with all these police cars and fire engines. And then, of course, word quickly gets around with all these witnesses seeing things. Yeah, then it's and pandemonium. It's Listen, Bill, we're going to take a time out. Stay put. We'll uh, come back sure. on the other side. Continue to delve into the true story of the Bridgeport poltergeist on Lindley Street. William J. Hall was then 10 years old, but he's now documented never-before-reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents in a new book, The World's Most Haunted House. Back with more 
on The Conspiracy Show right here. My name is Richard Serrett. Oh, also, I uh, wanted to mention, if you go to followthetruth.tv, our website for the uh, Follow the Truth, The Conspiracy Show Summit happening November the 16th in Oshawa, hosted by yours truly, we've posted, as we do every week, a special question on that website. Again, followthetruth.tv, find that question. Do a little research, won't take you long. Come up with the answer to that question and call Tim, my producer here in studio, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, or toll free, 1-866-740-4740. If you've got the answer, you'll walk away with a pair of tickets uh, to follow the truth. The Conspiracy Show Summit. In fact, we'll take the first two callers with the correct answer. You'll each win a pair. Okay. Back with uh, William Hall, the author of The World's Most Haunted House. And we're talking about uh, this poltergeist activity that that, uh, took the world by storm back in 1974. Thousands of witnesses, independent witnesses, saw furniture flying around in this tiny little house on Lindley Street in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the owners, Gerard and Cora Goodwin, uh, Gooden, rather. Um, William, give us some insights into who these these people were, because this just wasn't one sort of isolated incident. There, I mean, there were repeated calls for for help from this couple, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, the uh, Laura and Jerry only called the police uh, in 1971 and 72. It was, um, they called their friends when when this stuff really started and, um, and then got the attention of the neighbor, uh, you know, the police officer, uh, John Holsworth, who he ended up calling for backup as well as the friends called the police. So the Goodens actually never called the police. Um, uh, the, famous ghost hunters from the uh, the conjuring fame now uh, the Warrens were also called in not by the Goodens again but by uh, by a neighbor so um, they really didn't know what to do other than call their close friends but uh, they really were uh, kind of the uh, kind of the perfect couple as far as uh, you know their integrity and everything they were they were middle-aged at the time Jerry was an altar boy. He was a Boy Scout leader when he had no children of his own. Uh, they were just known to be good salt-of-the-earth people. He was a maintenance man at the, the factory. You know, just not a head-in-the-clouds kind of guy at all. They didn't believe, even believe in anything supernatural or paranormal. They, they didn't. Of course, as this stuff went on, they obviously had to face it and and had all sorts of uh, theories and questions, just trying to find out what it was. But so the, the you know that's uh, who the family were as people. They were just uh, known to be generous, uh, down to earth, and uh, you know not the kind of people would get involved in any any sort of uh, uh, hoax or anything like that. Which of course. Uh, everyone knew it it wasn't, especially the numerous police officers that were in and out of the house as well as others. Now, were news crews on the scene able to capture any of this poltergeist activity, this furniture flying around on on film? 
Uh, no, they um, there were news people that witnessed it happen, but uh, you know the 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 stuff really kind of happened uh, very quickly. Uh, so there was a Bridgeport Post reporter there. There, of course, radio people there that you know that that wouldn't apply there, but. Uh, there were TV stations there that uh, you know, interviewed the family and and that kind of thing a little bit. Some some they let in. They didn't like the publicity, but but because it was already there, uh, they were they did want to get the word out that they weren't crazy. You know that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of the mission of that because you know now they're this center of attention here. Um, and the fact that it's no, being witnessed by. Th- you know, thousands of people. So are onlookers on the street able to see this poltergeist activity from their vantage point on the street or are, are strangers traipsing through their house watching this stuff? Uh, there were p- people who uh, saw it on the street, uh, particularly not only through through the windows, but uh, there were the t- these two cement planter swans that they had on their porch uh, that were seen uh, moving on their own accord. Uh, by a number of people in the uh, in the crowd there, um, and there's a lot of people who walked away telling that story. And of course, I came came upon some of those witnesses, as well as the police would complain that the swans were making these guttural sounds, which I'm sure the swans weren't making it. But you know how you attribute uh, the audio phenomena to whatever is uh, closest nearby. So. Um, so, but they the swans were a big thing that they saw, as well as uh, you know some of them, of course, did look through the window. Actually, some of them did try to go in the. Every once in a while, somebody would try to go in the house or even get by the police, and then they'd have to be escorted out. So it really got uh, to be a crazy mess with all those people. I mean that that must have caused one would 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 think pandemonium like mass hysteria if you're sitting there watching this you know uh, these stone sculptures uh moving around of their own accord and making these guttural sounds and furniture flying around i mean that must have caused mass hysteria yeah i mean there were arrest maids they had dogs there and uh, paddy wagon patrol cars police they had the barricade the road closed uh, it was really crazy, and and then it really, uh, you know, when the superintendent, uh, uh, the police force there at the time, went, it cul- really culminated to head when uh, three guys tried to burn the house down while the family was in it, and that's when, you know, the hoax story came out after that. Yeah, they said we we've got to. With all this stuff going on, they had feared that uh, they were already making arrests, but they had feared that this thing was just something really bad was going to happen. It was already, of course, making the uh, superintendent look bad with all these police resources and these people. And, you know, the longer it goes on, the more people come. And, you know, from farther away they come and, you know, the more news media comes. And, of course, once Associated Press and, you know, Rudders was there, it was – uh, it was game over, so to speak, you know. So. And, and and how were the, the major news gathering organizations handling this story? Was it uh, with sort of a tongue-in-cheek treatment or was it uh, – were they, they covering it seriously? Uh, they ultimately covered it seriously, but they uh, – but most of them went into it with a tongue-in-cheek uh, attitude until they got in and realized what was – 
going on. Um, two guys from WNEB radio, local radio station at the time, went in and they thought they were going to have a good old time with it. And um, they were going to take some interviews and it was just going to be a real fun thing. And about five minutes after, um, you know, one of the guys said, I, I you know, in the, in the transcript, in the uh, testimony that he gave, he said, you know, we never took our recorders out. We left the house. He said we had absolutely nothing to do a story on. We didn't know if we even wanted to do a story. So a lot of the press, that's how they were reacting. Another uh, reporter was in there from the newspaper, and, and he saw a thing of dishes fly across and make a turn on the counter. And, you know, it shocked him greatly, and, and he felt really bad for the family. So they were having difficulty with this uh, job of uh, having to report this. And, of course, uh, you know, at, back at the station and, and, the, uh, and the newspaper offices, they, of course, wanted to make it entertaining, sensationalized, and all that stuff. And these uh, reporters were really facing the fact that this was a really serious uh, situation with people who are really suffering. So uh, that's a good question. They did go into it with that kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, approach and then quickly realized that uh, that this really was uh, a you know, sad and difficult situation. And, and I understand that several police reported, police now, the police are reporting seeing the kitchen refrigerator rise about a foot off the floor, and others said they they witnessed a 21-inch portable TV set float above a table, then rotate clockwise in the air. Have you corroborated that? Yes. Uh, and, you know, that's the amazing thing about this case is the documentation from the investigation is so, uh, is so unheard of because uh, some of these things that were witnessed by three or four police officers, as well as firefighters, each of them were interviewed separately, uh, describing. So you, you'd have six or seven people describing the same event separately, uh, not only on audio, but also with the positions of where everybody was in the room, uh, written down on an incident sheet, one incident sheet for every incident um, that uh, anyone gave in, you know, an, an interview or testimony on. So the kind of documentation in this case was unheard of. But, yeah, the refrigerator floated. That was uh, seen by four policemen as well as uh, others. I mean, priests, uh, priests saw it happen. The young seminarian, Paulino, who was there, saw the refrigerator float. Um, uh, electrical inspector and uh, a plumbing inspector that was called into the house. Because, of course, they were checking for all the usual things. Uh but, uh, yeah, I mean, they they saw – and, you know, the police didn't run away. I mean, they tipped the fridge. They looked under. They looked on top. One went to the basement, looked at the ceiling. You know, they really tried to, you know, come to grips with this, you know, this unknown uh, things happening. Um, as a 10-year-old – as a, sorry, Bill. As a 10-year-old, did you go by the house? Do you remember? No, I did not, no. Uh, and, you know, I really would have no way to unless my – parents drove me by it. And my dad was not, uh, you know, he just was not open to that kind of thing. Uh, matter of fact, I have to commend him because he's reading my book. So, which is a big stretch for him. <laughs> he's, he's actually, yeah, he's actually entertaining that this thing may be true just because of all he's heard about it, you know, from me, cause I played him some of the things and I said, well, yeah, listen to this 
<laughs> listen to this interview and 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 he is uh he is at least fascinated by it and you know that's the most i, I can ask because now, he's of course it was, was know, it the not, idea that the the police got together and decided that they're going to they're going to declare this as a hoax simply because they wanted to calm everybody down because as you say there were people trying to burn this house to the ground with the family inside is that what happened well it's it's interesting what happened it, it uh an inspector was brought into the case very late in the game, Inspector Clark, by the superintendent. And the superintendent told the inspector, you need to shut this down. You know, that was the instruction. You know, I don't care how, you need to shut it down. Got to stop. Uh, meanwhile, Tuesday morning, so this uh, these events happened as far as publicly. I mean, they were going on before that, but publicly it was a Sunday and a Monday was the, were the two days that were really heavy activity as well as uh, the media was involved at that point. In November, Tuesday, November of 74. In November of 74, yes, thank you. And uh, Tuesday morning when uh, they were having some activity and they called the, the police outside, please come help us, um, and they called for some other backup. And those officers that went in the house – uh, they saw Marcy. Marcy was on the. Uh, there was a TV on the on the carpet in the living room. Um, this is their adopted know, child. This Sorry, is this is their adopted child, right? Marcy yeah. is the adopted child of the uh, of the Goodens. Yes, who's ten years old uh, at the time, and um, and she sticks her foot out and and uh, hits the TV and it it uh, spins, and um, police officer saw her do it. And said, "Aha!" And uh, that was the beginning of, uh, you know, all the pl- the police at the very beginning suspected the child because I mean that does happen that sometimes the parents can't see or they don't believe it's their own child, but then when an outsider comes in, it's very, you know, it's very easy to see that it's you know the child doing that kind of stuff. These guys who were in the house did not see any of the activity that occurred before. So this is the first time they were in the house. So, um, and they saw Marcy do that. And then Marcy was pretending to make uh, her cat talk, which really didn't fool anybody, but there were all these reports of, uh, of the cat talking too, which again was the audio phenomenon. I don't believe the cat was talking. There were voices, there was footsteps, there was banging on the wall. You know, there were all these things going on. And so they said, okay, well, Marcy did the, you know, the ventriloquism with the cat. She kicked the TV and she must have thrown the things off, you know, the pictures off the wall and stuff. They didn't have to get into detail, you know, because uh, they didn't know what happened before and they really weren't interested because, you know, again, if I was them and I walked into what they did and saw only what they saw, you know, that would be your natural conclusion. So, you need, you know, and then they reported that back to Inspector Clark, who knew it was real. I mean, he had all the all the uh, the test, the witnesses and the police reports and he had all that stuff on his desk. He knew it was real and he didn't know what the heck to do with it with the case. Um, and he gets this call from uh, the guys on the scene saying, hey, we saw Marcy kick the TV. And he said, ah, he's thinking to himself, this is a. This is an opportunity here, um, you know, where I can do something with this and close the case. So they blamed it on Marcy and uh, called it case closed. And in fact, that inspector told uh, 
one of the uh, investig paranormal investigators after uh, Jerry Sulfin from Duke University said, I'm sorry, Jerry, you know, I, I did the best I could with what I had. I, you know, I had to close it down. All right, listen, uh, uh, Bill. I gotta, I gotta uh, take a break here. So, we'll oh, uh, sure. we'll pick up on that when we come back. We'll discover that this activity did seem to start right about the time that uh, the Goodens adopted this Marcy after the death of their own son. We'll uh, get into all of that and much more as we discuss the world's most haunted house: the true story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. William J. Hall, my guest, right here on the Conspiracy Show. William J. Hall is with us, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, talking about this remarkable, horrifying poltergeist activity witnessed by thousands, including police, firemen, and other first responders. This little tiny house on Lindley Street, and the center of this poltergeist activity may have been centered around a 10-year-old adopted girl by the name of Marcia who was actually a native girl from Canada. So there's your Canadian connection. And she was adopted by the Goodens after the family er, lost their their son, who I believe was uh, seven years old at the time. Now, so this activity began after they adopted Marcia. I understand about a year earlier, she was around nine. She was home from school for about six weeks because of a back injury. And that's when this all started. Is that right, William? Well, it it actually started in 1968, uh, shortly after they adopted Marcy, and she was about four and a half then. But it was very, uh, you know, very slow, uh, simmering kind of things, like uh, the chair being in the wrong place. Uh, you know, the, the things out of the corner of your eye. Nothing is is a big activity like what happened later, and uh, and and then in what really started it all was every November they had these banging sounds on the inside and outsides of the walls. And that um, started in 1971. And in 1972, their police officer friend, uh, Officer Holsworth, across the street suggested, why don't we record these sounds so that maybe uh, the police or civil engineers can figure out you know, what they're from. So they recorded those sounds. And that tape was given to Ed Warren, um, and then Ed gave it to Boyce Beatty, the lead investigator on the Lindley Street case, and Boyce gave it to me. So, And those sounds are actually in the bonus section of the book where you can access and hear those sounds for yourself. So those sounds is, is what really started it. But you're right as far as the, the big activity started after Marcy was for about a year, she was picked on every day at school because of her olive skin. As you said, she's you know Native American, and then um, she got beat up uh, in the cafeteria at school by a boy, and was home for about six weeks with her overbearing mother, who was very sheltering of Marcy because their little boy who died at age six that uh, you had mentioned uh, couldn't walk or talk or anything. He had cere cere cerebral palsy and. Um, so they they were kind of bringing Marcy up in the same kind of way. They were afraid she was going to get killed, and and meanwhile Marcy's very introverted, withdrawn to begin with. So all of this, you know, enters your your basic uh, you know poltergeist situation and within the tension in the family and the young girl, and and so uh, but that culminated in her six weeks of being at home, and uh, and That's after that. It, after that period is when it really 
picked up into uh, into that explosion of activity. You mentioned a seminary student who uh, was there and witnessed some of these things, and, and this uh, seminary student apparently performed the rituals of exorcism at the house, and uh, there was a 22-page report prepared. And in that report, uh, I mean, we could spend three hours just talking about what's in that report. Uh, there's made mention of a plastic crucifix that exploded from a wall in front of witnesses, and then this one. This is the one that sends the uh, the shivers up my spine. The family cat sang jingle bells in a frightening, inhuman voice. Have you been able to get a corroboration on that aspect of the story? Yeah, that actually was from uh, Father uh, Charbonneau, uh, a priest that uh, arrived with the Warrens in Paulino. And... Um, he had heard that as well as uh, the Warrens, but there were many people, including police officers, that heard the audio phenomena uh, and attributed to the uh, to the cat. But um, the uh, there was uh, let's see, there was a part I wanted to correct from something you said, and now I can't remember what it was. <laughs> was it about the plastic crucifix, or I oh, mentioned a plastic um, crucifix exploding? I mentioned. Uh, them. There was no exorcism uh, ah. uh, ever done, uh, but I believe in the police report there was. Uh, I think they said something about somebody had the power to perform exorcism, and that and that was um, all that was done ever done there was uh, you know a house blessing, uh, just to clarify that. Good. And, okay. And that, you know they tried to get one, but of course that was the kind of thing that once it got so public, uh, you know the church didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. Sure. Now, uh, when you're talking, when you're hunting down these first responders now, all these years later, 40 years later, were they, he- did they want to talk about it? Were they hesitant? Did, is this something that they wanted to forget about? Um, you know, I was amazed that uh, there only was one, uh, one police officer who refused to uh, talk about it. And... Um, I had heard from his brother that, you know, it really, really affected him and he really didn't want to, uh, you know, to go public again about it. He did talk about it back then. And I, you know, I had his, his interview from, you know, 74, but he didn't want to really talk again. Um, his, uh, the guy, the, the guy at Barnes and Noble did tell me his daughter came in and bought the book for him. So I guess he decided he did want to read and find out uh, everything that happened that was outside, of course, when he was there. But uh, other than that, I, w- I was amazed that everybody really was uh, uh, quite cooperative. Uh, Joe T- Officer Joe Tomic uh, took a few phone calls to you know, to warm up and he shared more and more as the more I talked to him and then finally sent me the, the original police report that, uh, that appears in the book. Um, but yeah, I was surprised that people were so receptive and for some it uh, changed their life forever. For others, they said, Oh, they don't really think about it that much. It was, <laughs> you know, the way people are, it's, it is amazing because it's not like in the horror movies, people react with a, with a whole range of, uh, emotions, uh, and most of them were trying to, uh, you know, discover what it was, um, you know, trying to deal with the unknown part of it. But, 
you know, some of the most shocking things to me are the different ways that the the entities appeared. And I'd like to play you a real short audio, if that's okay. We'll do that uh, when we come back, uh, Bill. Ah, okay. And uh, I'll also get you to uh, talk about maybe some of the more revelatory uh, interviews or conversations you had with some of these first responders all these years later. Forty years. Coming up, actually. Forty years after the poltergeist activity in Bridgeport, Connecticut on Lindley Street. William J. Hall is here to tell all in his explosive new book, The World's Most Haunted House. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Bill Hall stays with us, the author of The World's Most Haunted House, going back 40 years to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and some absolutely horrifying uh, poltergeist activity, uh, much of it witnessed by thousands of people, police, firemen, other first responders. You had a piece of audio you wanted to share with us, uh, William. First, set that up. What What is this audio about? Um, this is uh, Paul Eno uh, was one of the one of the few surviving uh, major witnesses to this case, and um, he actually had an encounter with the entities. Uh, actually, had a shoving match uh, with them. There was uh, four of them. And they were these gauzy-like figures. And he described to me like that you can see them kind of like you see uh, when you light a match and you see that blurry, uh, you can see the the blurry uh, section above the match. It was kind of 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 that nature. And he was a 21-year-old seminary student at the time. And his job was to watch Marcy uh, for two reasons. One is to protect her. And in the beginning to find out if she was, you know, doing these things, which, of course, they quickly figured out it wasn't her. And uh, this encounter with this uh, entity really changed Paul's view of it. He had the old school uh, demonology view of these things until he actually um, felt it. And it started um, changing his viewpoint that he didn't think uh that it was enough to really explain it. So I just want to uh, play his uh, interview when I connect it with him as he uh, shares a, a, uh, an encounter that he had not shared back in 74. He actually d- didn't talk about it for about 35 years. So uh, here it is. It's relatively short, but I think it's a, it's a nice uh, a snippet here. Okay. I think not uh, these things are supposed to be spirits that we believe they were demons, but the demons have anatomies and bone structures. I mean, I, I, I'm not a biologist. I couldn't really identify them. It was almost bird-like. The thing got around me and, you know, threw the kid across the room. So Paul had felt uh, anatomy and bone structure in this thing, uh, like he says, almost bird-like, these thin bones. And it really uh, threw him for a loop with everything he was taught, um, you know, about uh, considering them as uh, as demons. Um, but they were malevolent. I mean, these things were malevolent. They wanted to do harm. Well, and I wouldn't say that they're that they're positives, certainly. Um, but I, and and we could even say they're negative. I, I don't know if I would say that they're, and of course it's you know, anybody's guess because obviously there's a, you know a number of theories out there, but um, you know we don't really know 
uh, you know, what their what their motives were. I mean, we can say that, uh, you know, in picking up and throwing Marcy that uh, obviously they're they're evil or negative. But because there's energies involved here, uh, we really don't know. We don't know if something's a reaction to something. But those actions do seem very deliberate and, like you said, malevolent. Um, I try to think of all possibilities. Um, but I, I don't know if you can say they're pure evil. It's uh, Fair enough, you know, fair enough. But uh, why, why on earth? Especially with crowd sure <laughs> especially what the crowd was doing sure but, you know yeah yeah that's true uh yeah who, who are the who's the perpetrating the evil here the, but but why would the gooden stay in that house well you know they they did a lot of things that that you would do uh in that situation so um the first night for example they they had their friend police officer john holsworth stay overnight with them uh, there was another night that they were there that there was just a house full of people. So a lot of times they weren't alone. There were other times where, I mean, it came to a point where they had a bag packed and, uh, you know, they had kind of a new normal where they had a bag packed and, and when things were bad in the house, they would go over, uh, you know, to, to stay with family. Um, there were other times that they would decide to stay at the house and just have Marcy go stay with family. Um, so, so they really kind of mixed it up depending on what was going on in the house. Uh, they were told by, uh, the Warrens and father Charbonneau, uh, that the way the pol poltergeist operates, that if they did move, uh, this would follow them. So what, what happened to Marcy? Uh, what happened to Marcy? Where is she now? Well, as far as we know, uh, she's she was okay, as, and we don't know what okay means, but uh, she was at least alive <laughs> and okay as of a few years ago. Um, and that confirmation comes from uh, one of the witnesses who was actually a Boy Scout when Jerry was the Boy Scout leader and the assistant uh, Boy Scout leader was... Uh, uh, was this gentleman's uh, father. And uh, anyhow, uh, this guy, Dennis, his brother was very close to Jerry, and he told him uh, about Marcy's status, but uh, uh, he's dead now, so, you know, of course, he can't ask him what okay means. And at the time when it came up, he wasn't, uh, of course, concerned enough to go into details. So, but nobody knows you know, no where one... she is. No one knows where she is. Well, we're told she's in Canada, so it's your job to find her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would gladly take that on. All right. That's my assignment. Well, well, that because she was from Canada, that she's, it's quite possible she may be, you know, with the tribe there or, you know, something like that. So, I mean, I did hire a private invest, uh, investigation firm to uh, try to find her. So we know she's not in the U.S., from what I hear, Canadian records are a bit different, so it's um, you know it's a little bit tougher and more expensive to track down. And sure, you know, not not that I think she'd want to talk, but it would have been nice to say, okay, you know, she's okay or she has a family, sure, or, you know, sure. whatever. You know. How, how long did the Goodens stay in the house? Um, they actually lived there the rest of their, their lives because what happened is after the phenomena had uh, settled, uh, they did try to sell the house. Uh, even though there was no more phenomena and it wasn't because they were scared the phenomena was going to come back. But after, after, uh, 
the entities were dis, you know dissipated and the activity stopped, they still didn't want to stay there because of the uh, the people. You know, uh, it was uh, constant ridicule at work. It was uh, tire slashing and, uh, you know, the mirror on the car breaking and clothes being pulled off the line. And, you know, it's just uh, people were just really tormenting them and they wanted to get out of the city. But they tried to sell the house and couldn't, uh, probably more likely because of the size versus what happened there. <laughs> you know, you usually can find somebody who wants to buy a, you know, a house that had that kind of activity. There's but, a huge uh, market. There is a surprisingly yeah. huge market for that sort of thing. Now, I don't know if there was back in the 70s, but, um, you know, when you have a house that's 738 square feet, that's a tough sell no matter what happened. And, you know, they wanted, uh, I think it was $31,000 for it, and it ended up selling in the year 2000 for, I think, 21. So, you know, they they had their money into in it, so they had to get a certain amount, and they just couldn't sell it. So instead, they painted the house and got rid of the swans and, you know, sure. tried to at least disguise it. Instead of disguising it, the new look hit the newspaper. So, you know, but right. uh, but that's why they ended up staying there, you know. Now, I, I've just got a couple of minutes here, uh, Bill. So many things, so much to cover, so little time. You, you're a trained magician. So as yeah. a trained magician, I mean, were you going into the story trying to maybe prove that it was a hoax, knowing how, you know, some of these effects could be, could be manipulated, could be, uh, could be manufactured? Yeah, I was thinking it, it would I was thinking it most likely was not real. I mean I was open to it, but that was my thought. Um and luckily the interviews were done with such detail um that I had the detail I needed in order to understand completely what they saw. Not just what they interpreted that they saw, but you know, exactly what they viewed. And, you know, because in the newspapers, you know, you hear a refrigerator floated and that's what they perceive happened. But you don't you don't hear the play by play of, you know, what they actually saw, what lifted up first. How did it react? Did it shake? Was there rumbling? Was there sound? You know, all the questions. Sure. And was there, you know, that voice. Was there a moment when whether it was during an interview with one of these first responders that and you, that you can recall thinking to yourself, "Oh my God, this was real." Yeah, um, yeah. Some of the most compelling testimony was by um, Father Charbonneau. You know, being a priest and describing you know the formation of a shadowy figure um, is really compelling. Uh, but I must say. It really was. Uh, it really was the count, compounding effect of hearing uh, police officer after police. You know, eight hours of police officer interviews, and uh, after you hear so much of it, it. Uh, I think the. I guess like synergy. You know, the total really uh, was was over was overflowing with evidence, but it took about 20 hours. I remember it being about at the 20 hour mark of listening to these interviews that I was at the 150%, you know, it's real mark. Cause uh, a lot of it, you're like, well, it sounds good. Nothing tells me it's a hoax, but you're still not quite sure you need more and more and more. And then finally you hit the mark and say, okay, well, I heard eight hours of police interviews and I heard all these firemen, I heard the priests. And, and then it gets to the point where it's just, there's no question. How Especially that, with the 
type of things that happen. So, how did this? Uh, how did it all end? I mean, how, when when did the the poltergeist activity stop, and and, and under what circumstances? Well, as I've learned, most of these things stop when uh, some sort of peace and routine is restored to the family. So uh, when uh, Marcy was able to return to school, but a different school, she returned to uh, Catholic school, uh, which was not the rough kind of school that she was in before when she was beat up. Once she got back to school and got in her routine and was happier herself and uh that's when uh, the activity dissipated and uh, never returned. And uh, like I said, the family still tried to sell the house, couldn't, but because there was no activity, figured, okay, we can't sell the house. So, you know, you know, they decided to uh, to stay there. How did how did this change your life, if at all, Bill? Once you you wrote this book, you you and you came away a believer that all of this paranormal activity, this poltergeist activity. Uh, you know, these demonic-sounding voices uh, coming out of the cat, perhaps. I mean, how did that change your life? It must have. Oh, yeah, yeah, boy, I'll tell you, you said it, Richard. Yes, it did uh, change my life. I, I felt kind of bad with how, not how strict, but maybe the way I viewed people who, although I had I had people close to me that had their own experiences, and I didn't think they were lying, but I didn't really know what to make of it, you know, without having any sort of proof or context of it, it's difficult, you know, but, uh, it did change my view of the world and it's a much more magical place for real for me. And, uh, it's, uh, it's an exciting discovery. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just really happy. I'm in the place I am now. Um, because now I have the eyes of a skeptic, but, uh, the realization that there are those true things out there. Bill Hall, I appreciate your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And uh, my website's uh, worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. Also the name of the book, The World's Most Haunted House. Thanks again, Bill. My uh, thanks also to Tim Spreen. Back next week, we'll talk to a doctor who says there is no real connection between high cholesterol and heart disease. I know, that's incendiary stuff. We'll talk to him about it. Back with more next week. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.